Back in the 1980s, if your college band was good enough, you would get a chance because uh, to premiere music or record music if your band was chosen by a composer or by a music company. So back in the 1980s, they would have these things called records, and the records would have 30 to 60 second tracks of new songs written by new composers. And if your band was considered good enough, right, they would choose you or select you to participate in these premieres and in these recordings. And because I was in the Wheaton College Wind Ensemble, I got to do that because the Wheaton College Wind Ensemble was chosen to be one of those bands. How many of you have been in a group that was chosen to do something special or unique? Yeah, a few of you have. In Kentucky, one way that happens is in our 4-H clubs. So if you get elected to be an officer in your high school's 4-H club, you now belong to a special group. And that special group, once a year, goes to Frankfurt, our state capital, and you get to meet all of your legislatures, legislators, you get to meet the governor, and then later on, you go to Washington, D.C., and believe it or not, both Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell will make time for you, and you'll be in their presence because you're in this group. The, this concept, this idea of being in a group that's chosen to do something special is part of what Paul is getting at in the beginning parts of his letter to the Ephesians. And so, by way of reminder, at the heart of Paul's letter is this idea that something hidden has been revealed. So if you were here last week, I talked about the fact that Paul had been apocalypsed on the way to Damascus. And that's the word he uses is apocalypto. I was apocalypsed. And so Paul, on his way to Damascus, Paul didn't see Jesus for who Jesus was. Jesus' true identity as the Messiah, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, was hidden from Paul. Paul thought the guy was just some two-bit rabbi that had some cheap magic tricks and was leading God's people astray. But on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus, and Jesus' true identity was revealed to him. And Paul's response, oh snap, Jesus is the Messiah. And he spent the next three days blind waiting for the next part. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, uh, Paul has this long sentence in Greek. It's one long sentence in Greek. And I want to unpack a few ideas from these beginning phrases out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it all starts with this all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in Hebrew, it would be a barakah, a blessing. If you've been to a Seder meal that our church does, a family-friendly Seder meal during Holy Week, you've probably picked up on the fact that it seems like every other sentence is, blessed are you, O God. <laughs> right? Remember that phrase? So the Jews would pray that 14, 20 times a day, this phrase in various prayers that they did. And so Paul is sharing this barakah or this blessing. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to walk through some things, and I'm going to challenge a big idea that we've had in the West, okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. All praise to God, barakah, 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us, which belonged to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He's showered us with kindness, along with all wisdom and understanding. And now, God has revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so he would pray, we would praise and glorify him. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I've had a long time struggle preaching from anything that Paul wrote in the New Testament. I find Paul challenging. I find his rhetoric very un-American. <laughs> it's just downright un-American way of thinking about things. And so we're going to struggle through this together over the next several weeks, okay? So we're going to, I think there's some amazing things to be seen and understood in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this first section, there are some words that if you grew up in the church, your alarm bell should be going off because you've heard these words in church, in Catholic church, in Baptist church, in Presbyterian church, in Methodist church, blessing, predestined, forgiveness, blameless, grace, God's will, adopted, Redemption, glory, believe. I mean, can we all agree these are some highly charged religious terms? Ding, 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 ding. Now, what I want to suggest to you today is that these words may not mean necessarily what you have thought they have meant because you're Americans and because you have a tendency to see things through this American lens. And so today in particular, I want to give Paul a chance to tell us what these words mean, okay? And in order to draw this out, I got to go to the movie Frozen. So in the movie Frozen, right before Love is an Open Door, there's this scene with Hans and Anna, okay? Anna, sorry. I like to say it the Indiana way. Um, so, so he says, I'm glad I caught you. Now there's the literal stumble trip catch, so it's got that meaning. I'm glad I caught you. It also means I'm glad you're here at the party and I've run into you. And then because Prince Hans is, well, the villain. It also means, it also means I'm glad I've caught you in the snare of my evil plan, right? So that phrase means several different things all at once. 
Words don't mean anything, Tim Mackey says. <gasps> what? Words don't mean anything. People mean something by their use of words. Context is crucial. So when I was a student at Wheaton College in the 1980s, they would drill this into us. C-I-E, C-I-E, C-I-E. Context is everything. And then I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, and you know what they did? C-I-E, C-I-E, C-I-E. They drove it into us. Context is everything. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say that I'm... Let's say that I'm out on an adventure serve project with Zeke and some of the other youth this summer on July 28th. And let's say that we're building another wheelchair lamp for some woman that doesn't have, for some woman that does not have a tree in her yard at all. And on this particular day in July, it's 93 degrees. And Zeke and I and other members of the youth have been working since 9 o'clock in the morning, and it's now 4.30 in the afternoon. And I look at Zeke, and he sweated through his T-shirt, and his face is beet red. And I say to him, man, you look hot. What do I mean? Yeah, your temperature is hot. Now, let's say it's February 14th. And several of us are going as a group to the castle for a big swanky dinner. And we're meeting in my living room. We're there at the, the front door of my house. There's about six, seven, eight of us. We're going as a group. And Jenny Vanderpool comes down the stairs in a cocktail dress. And I say to her, man, you look hot. Am I talking about her temperature? <laughs> okay, so you... You get how this works, okay? You get how this works. So one of the reasons that we don't understand Paul and what Paul means by these words is because we've been telling this larger story, and this is the larger story that we tell. And I'm stealing this from Tim Mackey and Ben Witherington, okay? So we've told this story that, well, because we're Americans, we tend to think of God and me. Me, 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 me. I want to go to heaven when I die. Like, I want to be happy. I want to have a really good life. God, bless me. God, work with me. God, heal me. So it's me and God. But there's a problem, and that's sin. So thank goodness God's provided a solution. And depending upon what happens with that solution and how I appropriate it, I will either go to heaven or I will go to hell. And we tend to use heaven singular, even though in the Bible it's always the heavens. And, or uh, hell. And so heaven is the good place. Hell is the bad place. Is there an afterlife? Yes. Are there two possible outcomes in the afterlife? Yes. But when Paul starts using words like chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined, elected, because this is the story we tell, we tend to come to this conclusion. Oh, God chose before the foundation of the world which place I personally will go. Oh, no. <laughs> or, oh, yes, depending upon where you think you are and which direction you think you're going. And that's not what Paul has in mind when he's using these words like election, chosen, predestined. Okay, so we're going to get into some theology, and I apologize, but I promise it, hopefully it will be worth it. So Paul, in his big story that he has in mind is God made everything, God made the first humans, and God wanted to bless them. But they disobeyed, they wanted to be God unto themselves, they wanted to decide what was right and wrong, and so, boom. Boom. 
so God picks another person, Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world through you. And of course, Abraham stumbles and trips and <laughs> has his own issues. And then that his descendants become Israel. And I'm going to bless you, Israel, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And on and on it goes, and it's going to culminate in the coming of the Messiah, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is what Paul has in mind when he writes these words in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. This second story, which is different than the story, can we agree, it's different than the one we've typically heard in church in America. It's different. Okay? And so... Paul is drawing out several things, and I want to, Genesis 1, Genesis 12, Exodus 1, Psalm 72. So let me draw this out. At the very opening pages of the Bible, what does God want to do to humans? God bless them. <laughs> God bless them. We see that same thing with Abraham. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. And in Exodus 1, at the very beginning, with things go south with Pharaoh, what do we see happening? The Israelites have multiplied and filled the very thing God wanted them to do, the command in Genesis. In Psalm 72, we get a hint that there will rise a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. May all the nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. And then in Acts, the early apostles are referring to this same story when they're announcing the good news, the gospel, that God is rescuing humanity, okay? So Tim Mackey puts it this way. He says, God is choosing one out of the many so that through the one, he can restore blessing to the many. And then there's this change of pronouns that happens. We Jews, you Gentiles. So in that verses 3 to 14, he starts off with we, us, and he means us Jews who first believed. And then he talks about you Gentiles who have heard and believed. And God's making all of us together into one family, God's family, okay? And so I, I want to draw out some things out of this passage. So if this choosing is not God determining ahead of time which person goes to the good place and which person goes to the bad place, what exactly is Paul talking about? Well, he explains it in another letter, the letter to the Romans, okay? So if you'll allow me to walk you through this. They are the people of Israel. What's that word there? Chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law and gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving this wonderful promise. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants doesn't make them Abraham's children. Isaac's the son of your descendants will be counted, blah, blah, blah. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. And he spells this out. Uh, before they were born, had they before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works, okay? And then in 11, chapter 2, no, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. The chosen covenant people 
are the chosen, elected, predestined people of God who now include Jew and Gentiles who believe in Israel's Messiah. I was a member of the Wheaton College Wind Ensemble, and because I was in the Wind Ensemble, I was what? Chosen. So that indicates something very important. In Paul's letters, you're going to come up with this phrase a lot. In Christ, 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 in Christ. And he's saying that when you're in Christ, you're chosen, predestined from the foundation of the world, uh, an heir of the blessing when you're in Christ because God is blessing that group, okay? And it's really, really important. So now I think we're ready to go to just a couple of verses in this section that I just read. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So again, because we're Americans and we read the Bible as Americans, we tend to read these things as God and me, and really, most of the time, it's all y'all, <laughs> okay? And we, because we have this story about heaven, hell, blah, 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 uh, we have this tendency when we come across phrases like this to believe that God is choosing individual people to go to the good place or the bad place. And that's not what Paul means at all when he's writing this stuff in Ephesians. And besides, if you look at how God is choosing, it's out of love. God chooses out of love to bless a group of people and to adopt them and make them his family. And this adoption is huge in this first chapter of Ephesians. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, Jews didn't really have a notion of adoption. So if you were widowed or orphaned, they would keep going out, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, fifth cousins, sixth cousins, three times removed until they would find a kinship redeemer, somebody who would marry the widow or adopt the children, bring them into the family. In the Roman communities, adoption was a thing. Adoption was a thing. In, and you would get adopted into the oikos or the familia. Now, remember, right, in the first century, half of all children lived long enough to become adults it's a brutal life. Lots of kids are dying, okay? And so if you're in the upper echelons of Roman society and, and your wife has had four children and only one of them have made it to adulthood and that's a girl, you don't have an heir. And so you look around for someone to adopt. And in Roman families, the person who was adopted had the same privileges as a biological son. They were considered equal in all the ways that mattered. An adopted child could not be disavowed. Their status was permanent. And so in many Roman families, the adopted kid was the loved kid, right? That's how that played out. Julius Caesar adopted a young man named Octavian, and Octavian later became Roman emperor. So Paul is saying here that all believers, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, have been transferred by fiat, that's the whole what he wanted to do and give him great pleasure thing, 
and they've been transferred into God's own oikos, God's own family. And all of this was motivated by love. This is how Ben Witherington puts it. I wish Paul Tippy were here because I could tell him, is this what Ben would say? Um, if one is in Christ, if one is in Christ, one is elect and part of the destined messianic family. Paul's not talking about the pre-temporal electing or choosing of individual humans outside of Christ to be in Christ, but rather of the election of Christ and what is destined for those who are in Christ. The concept here is explicitly developed from the story of Israel's election. If someone was in Israel, they were part of God's chosen people. Is this starting to make sense to you? So when you are in Christ, you are chosen, adopted, like all of those things. You get all of that when you are in Christ. So this first chapter of Ephesians is really talking about, at its core, identity. Identity. Paul wants these Ephesians to understand that they're all part, how they came to be part of God's family through Jesus Christ. So let me ask a couple of questions and, and let me draw this out, okay? What are some situations in life where you felt like you didn't belong? What are some situations in life where you felt like you didn't belong? And what do you make of Paul's claims that you have been chosen and adopted and therefore belong in God's family? And then secondly, what story have you heard about God and people? Here's why I think this is important. American Protestant Christians have tended to emphasize behaviors and externals. Don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or associate with those who do. When you show up to God's house, you better be dressed appropriately and show respect. And women, wear some things that are modest. And that's how American Protestants have tended to roll here in America. We focused on externals. I find it interesting that Paul takes so much time to talk about identity. I think in so many ways in life, identity flow or behavior flows out of identity. Behavior flows out of identity. I know this because I've watched the movie Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my favorite movies. There's a scene about the middle of the film where a prisoner, a guy named Brooks, he's been in prison his whole life and he's released. And even though he's now a free man, he still thinks like a prisoner. He still thinks of himself as a prisoner. When he's working in the grocery store, he asks permission to go to the bathroom because that's what you do in prison. He's what they call institutionalized. But he's got an identity problem, and that gets him into trouble when he is released from prison. Um, I believe we need to shift our focus a little more toward identity and identity formation in the church. Who are we? Whose are we? Um, and this sense of identity includes a couple of important things, a sense of self and a sense of worth, a sense of self and a sense of worth. Um, the sense of self is this durable core of identity of you, the you on the inside through all the different roles and hats that you wear. So there's this thing, core thing that I consider to be Max Vanderpool, whether I'm a pastor here or a husband to Jenny, or working as a chamber ambassador, there's this core me. And then the other part of identity is what the sense of worth, what makes you feel significant, gives you confidence in your value. Now, in traditional cultures like in Africa, Asia, places like that, uh, identity formation is communal, 
and it's linked to family. In other words, you obtain a good identity by sublimating yourself to your family, to the good of your family, to the good of your tribe, to the good of your community, to the good of your people. In America, identity formation is individual and emotive. You obtain a good identity by reaching deep down inside, looking deep inside to your dreams and desires, and you express those, assert those, follow those, and make them happen. Which is why in America we have all kinds of people that are centering their identity on politics. I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm a progressive. And everything kind of flows out of that core identity thing. Uh, we do it with sex and sexuality. I'm straight. I'm gay. I'm bi. Like, and the, everything flows out of that core part of identity. We do it with roles. I'm a mom. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm this, and all of our identity flows out of that role. In America, we love to do it in accomplishment. Uh, I'm making seven feet. I have a Facebook friend. They love, once a month, they're making a big deal of the fact that they make seven figures a year. Woo, good for you. You're a millionaire. I love it, right? You know, but I'm important. I'm valuable because I'm doing this, right? And so Americans do this crazy thing about identity and identity formation, and I think Paul is trying to help us out. When our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, when we allow God to tell us who we are, it flavors everything. It flavors everything. So what are some things that Paul says in this first chapter of Ephesians about those of us who are in Christ? And by the way, the people who are in Christ, you Gentiles, Paul spells it out. How did they get there? You heard and believed. You heard the gospel and believed. And you were made in Christ. And those who are in Christ are blessed, loved, chosen, holy and without fault, adopted, purchased, united with Christ, receiving an inheritance, and sealed. Would you let God tell you who you are? Would you let God tell you, particularly through the scriptures, who you are? As, this is as radical today as I believe it was in the first century. Um, step into God's story. God's doing something wondrous. He's rescuing humanity through Jesus Christ, and he's restoring the blessing from the opening pages of Genesis. So again, I struggle preaching Paul. <laughs> Maybe you struggled listening today, but you made it. Look at you. Good job. Um, identity formation, identity stuff is huge. And so we see in the opening letters, in the opening phrases of Paul's letter to Ephesians, he's camped out in identity, okay? And my simple question and challenge is today, would you let God tell you who you are at your core and allow him to tell you your worth and value?